today. Uh, help us uh, to um, not to be distracted uh, by things, particularly things that might feel difficult or unresolved. We ask that you'll speak to us as we look at these words of your Son. Amen. So we are thinking about Jesus teaching about the end and talking about kind of end times has often been associated with cults, conspiracy theorists, possibly those kind of fringe parts of society. Maybe those back in the day, there were the people who'd walk around the street corners with a placard saying the end is nigh. Uh, But it hasn't just been the fringes of society that talk about the end times or the end of the world. Uh, In the Cold War era, the idea of mutually assured destruction and nuclear holocaust was often raised in the media and it was a very real threat to the world. In recent years, perhaps that threat of the end of the world has been replaced by climate change or threat of climate change. So figures like Greta Thunberg have gained widespread uh, attention and much more than a, a cult following. But most of us, I think, from time to time might ponder our own end, you know, how long are we going to live for, what's it going to be like, all that kind of thing. But how often do you ponder, in the words of the great REM single from the 80s, the end of the world as we know it? The end of the world as we know it. How often do you think about that? And that's what we're thinking a little bit about today, Jesus teaching on the end from uh, the Gospel of Mark chapter 13. And it's the longest recorded teaching of Jesus in Mark's Gospel And it is one of the more difficult parts to understand, in part because of the style of the language and also in part because of its subject matter. And why it's tricky, I think, to understand the passage is to do with the perspective that we view the passage, the lens, the angle that we view the passage at. We can focus on the passage from one angle and it just seems that bits don't fit neatly together and you've got to shift around you know those kind of optical illusions that you can sometimes see here's one that i found recently now this is the same chair but photographed from different angles so if you can go to the first the first image if you look at it there you kind of kind of looks like a chair but it just doesn't look right and you move to a different angle i think that's more from the top you think that's still looking not quite right it's the same chair but if you hop around and you see the chair that's the right angle I think our passage can be a little bit like that. Jesus is talking about the end, but from multiple different angles. And if you only focus on one of the angles, it won't actually look right until we look at the lens that Jesus wants us to look at it for. So a few things we're going to uh, consider uh, before we get right into the text. First of all, the style of the language, uh, the style of the writing, much of this passage Uh, resembles the kind of literature known as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is found in the Bible in books like Daniel, which is quoted in this passage, Ezekiel, uh, the book of Revelation. It's often language that was used to describe the world from a cosmic perspective and the meaning of text was often conveyed through imagery and symbols rather than kind of historical chronology and all those kind of things. And as we read this passage, we do see it reads kind of like that kind of cosmic battle going on. There's stars falling from the sky, the sending of the angels, the four winds. And because of this cosmic language and some of the ways it talks about, many take this passage to be referring just to kind of the end of the world, the events leading up to the return of Jesus, the second coming. 
Now, when we look at it this way, a bit like the chair, there are certain things that look a bit strange. And that's verse 30. Jesus says, I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have taken place. Now, the second coming hasn't happened yet, but the generation of Jesus' original hearers, they have all passed away. So what's going on here? Something doesn't look exactly right. Clearly, is Jesus' words were for the generation of his listeners and the events all happening don't seem to line up with the view of this kind of this right angle of the text. It kind of doesn't completely line up with the idea that it's all about the second coming. Well, let's now consider the length of this passage. Mark's gospel has 16 chapters and chapter 13... Uh, This teaching takes up almost 5% of the entire book, much more than the verses that we looked at last week, which is talking about the greatest commandment. Remember last week we were talking about love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbour. The greatest commandment, the one that holds everything together, the one that gives all of the law meaning. We looked at that last week. This passage is so much bigger in terms of relative importance. So what's going on there? Of all the things that Mark could have chosen to include in this 16-chapter account of the life and ministry of Jesus, he decided to include these 37 verses, this extended teaching on a topic that seems on the surface to be talking about all this kind of end-time stuff. The next thing for us to consider is where is this text positioned in the book? It comes immediately before the climax of the book, which deals with the events leading up to and including Jesus' trial crucifixion and death if you were here at easter last year from the thursday evening service to the sunday easter day service we covered chapters 14 15 and 16 they were read aloud at all the services and we're wise to think why did mark decide to include these 37 verses immediately before the events of the passion narrative and we're going to return to that a little bit later the events of jesus death are recorded straight after this passage but what has come before it well in chapter 12 which is what we're looking at last week we see jesus teaching and he's interacting in the temple complex and we see jesus observing how people are behaving in the temple area and this passage begins with jesus uh, and his disciples leaving the temple area and kind of one of the disciples makes a comment on the architecture the impressive architecture of the temple he says teacher look what what massive stone what impressive buildings And Jesus replies, a bit of a killjoy perhaps, don't get too comfortable, it's all going to be destroyed effectively. Not one of these stones will be left here on another. They're all going to be thrown down. Now, I think for a lot of us, we're probably feeling not struggling to feel the weight of that kind of statement, uh, but the temple was pride and joy for a first century Jewish person, especially those living under the uh, Roman Empire. It represented their security It represented their assurance that God was with them. It reminded them of their special relationship with God. It was very much part of their identity. It was a constant through the years. You know, the comment would have been like, uh, you know, if you're down at the harbour on Australia Day and you're kind of going, gosh, look at this harbour, look at this opera house, look at the harbour bridge. Just wonderful. Just so incredible, really. And then Jesus kind of says, you know what, it's all going to be destroyed. And you think, well, right, okay. You can imagine the disciples of Jesus are understandably concerned. And so they ask Jesus these two related questions in verse 4. When are these things going to happen? 
and what's the sign that these things are going to take place. And the rest of the chapter that follows is this extended teaching from Jesus following this question about the destruction of the temple. Now, as Elise mentioned earlier, if you're a student of ancient history, you'll know that the physical temple that the disciples uh, were commenting on was destroyed uh, during the Roman siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so some will argue, well, this chapter, the rest of this passage, must be referring to that historical event involving the devastation of the temple and Jerusalem. And this kind of makes a bit of logic sense. Logical sense. The, the disciples ask this question, this is the context, Jesus is answering it. And it also makes sense of that tricky verse we saw before, verse 30. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. So considering these events, they took place in 70 AD. That's certainly within the lifetime, the generation of Jesus' disciples. It makes sense that the, Jesus must be referring to uh, the destruction of the temple, not, not the second coming. And some New Testament scholars will argue that it's exclusively concerned with Jesus talking about this event in 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. And they would say, this is the angle to be looking at this passage. You know, you've got your different angles. I'm uncomfortable with that for a number of different reasons. Even though it lines up in some areas, in other areas, I don't feel like it lines up. Verse 19. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of the world, which God created, until now and will never be again. Now, as significant as the destruction of the temple would have been for Jewish people in 70 AD, it doesn't seem to match the weight of the description in this verse. A tribulation never seen before since the beginning of the world and will be never seen again. I mean, it was a big deal for a first century Jewish person, but it was hardly the greatest tribulation since the creation of the world and the greatest tribulation that will ever be seen. So again, it seems like focusing on the temple destruction as the only th- ang- th- that angle seems again not to line up. It's a bit like the chair. It's slightly off. Something looks kind of wrong. I want to suggest there is a sharper angle that this passage is intended to be read that makes sense of the other kind of references and that makes sense of the kind of cosmic, apocalyptic language. And that is, this passage, I think, is referring to and meant to be viewed through the lens of Jesus' death. New Testament scholar uh, Peter Bold, he's got a great book called The Cross from a Distance in Mark's Gospel, and he wrote this. It seems to me that Mark 13, when read in the context of the story, is about Jesus' death and resurrection rather than about the second coming or the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Mark 13 is an apocalyptic preparation for the Passion. And so the chapter becomes important for our inquiry into the meaning of the cross in Mark's story. So if we consider Jesus' extended answer to the disciples' question about what's going to happen, when are these stones going to be overturned and all those kind of things, that they kind of, Jesus answers this question just before he goes, goes into the events that are about his death and he, he kind of pivots from talking about their question concerning the temple, very precious to them, to talking about things of a magnitude, apocalyptic magnitude about his death. And that's not, if you've read the New Testament, that's not a strange idea. In John chapter 2, we read Jesus talking about his body as the temple. Later in Mark's gospel, we hear 
Those who pass by hurl insults. Jesus shaking their heads saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. And here's what's interesting. There are a number of clues, I think, when we only, when we, we can miss if we read the passages in isolation, but there's a number of clues in the languages of chapter 13, 14 and 15. There are parallels that bind this section together and there are plenty of them. I just wanted to point out a few of them. So there are parallels in the language of keeping watch. You know, in, in chapter 13, there's the language of stay awake, keep alert, be aware, you know, be, be, uh, don't, don't fall asleep. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you read in chapter 14, Jesus returns to his disciples and finds them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch? For one hour, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So we're seeing this watch language resurfacing at the garden. And here's an interesting one. I find this one a quite a quirky one. In chapter 13, when Jesus is talking about the, in this kind of language about the end and all this kind of stuff, there's this bit where it says, chapter 13, verse 16, a man in the field must not go back to get his clothes. And you're going, okay, all right, that's what it's there for. But then there's this curious, seeming random reference, again, in the Garden of Gethsemane. You think, why on earth did Mark include this? Just at the end of it, he says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Why would Mark choose to put that in? All in, it's only about 16 chapters. There's a connection, isn't there? There's, he's, he's making these connections. In chapter 13, we see, in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. So we're thinking, okay, end of the world stuff. But in chapter 15, at the cross, verse 33, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now, there are just a few. There are plenty of parallels between chapter 13 and the events around Jesus' death. You see him being, you know, going into the Sanhedrin, being flogged, all these kind of, all these languages that bind these two things going together. But the question, I guess, is why is Jesus using such apocalyptic, cosmic language, end times talk, to talk about his death? Well, it's because I think the only way that we can make sense of the end is by understanding the significance and centrality of what happened at the cross. That is, the right angle to view the last days is through the angle of the cross of Christ, where the sinless Son of God took on himself the horrors due to us for our rejection of him. The scriptures talk about that time at the end of the world where everyone faces judgment that is due for them and, and, the, and the facing the judgment of God is a terrifying prospect for those who are not in a right relationship with God. And as we read the scriptures, we see there are kind of two options, not kind of, there are two options when it comes to the judgment of God. One is our end will be we will face God's judgment in the future or our end can be at the cross 
where our judgment is taken on Jesus, his son, the sinless son of God, who took on himself the horrors due to us for our rejection of him. This, I think, is what's meant by that quote from Daniel 12, the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong. It's not talking, I don't think, about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Something much bigger. This does not belong. The Son of God does not deserve to take the wrath of God on himself. This is a huge injustice. The horror, the abomination, the sinless saviour. In Hebrews chapter 9 we read, Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So we have this passage where Jesus is teaching about the end, but he's calling us to see the end through a cross-shaped lens, not to be fixated you know, the, even the language of the second coming so is often taken where it says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, a quote from Daniel 7. The word coming, we sometimes just assume it's like, well, he's obviously going to come down. Well, the word actually just as easily means going. So when Jesus ascends, and that's the way it's understood a little bit later when Jesus is put before the, the authorities and he says, yeah, you'll see the Son of Man going or going to the Father. That's a quote from Daniel 7 which talks about the, the vindication, the exaltation of the king. We're called to live cross-shaped lives in light of the death, the victorious death of our Christ. Now, when we read through this passage, there are a bunch of warnings, aren't there? Don't be deceived, we see. Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they deceive many. There's a warning to not be deceived. There's a warning to not be alarmed. When you hear of wars and rumours of wars, don't be alarmed. Be on your guard. There's a warning to be on your guard. We're going to be persecuted. But you be on your guard. If you're going to live a life like Jesus, you're going to be handed over. You're going to be flogged. You're going to stand before governors because of me as a witness to them. We see that the good news is going to be proclaimed. So on a chronological level, the end doesn't just finish at the cross, right? It doesn't just finish at 33 AD in that terms of timeline. But we understand the times that we're living in by that event. So we live now in light of that event means that we don't have to be deceived by people who come along with messianic complexes and say, I'm here... I am going to, I'm going to redeem the world? No. We don't have to be alarmed. We don't have to try to map the events in the Middle East to say, well, this must mean that this time means that this is happening here. No, no, very clearly in Scripture that this has been the way of the world, right? Don't be alarmed when you hear of wars or rumours of wars. We also need to be prepared that we're not going to be loved if we stick to the cross, because if we want to follow Christ-shaped lives, why would we expect people to treat us better than they treated Christ, who was brought before the Sanhedrin, who was flogged, 
and we see here as well. The core business of God's people in the world between now and his return, the core business is the, is the gospel, the news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus going out to all the nations. It must be proclaimed, the good news must be proclaimed and this term uh, coming up starting next week and and leading up to our weekend away we're going to be thinking i've called this series what on earth are we doing but i've kind of got a double meaning what on earth you like that what on earth are we doing yeah i thought you knew you can take it casually or you can take it yeah but that's what we're going to be thinking we're going to think what are we doing you know this year we're thinking about growing together we're thinking about growing together as god's people what does that look like we're going to think about what, what, what is the church called to do? Why didn't God just say, okay, time is up, church, come with me. No, that we've been left here as God's people for a purpose. What are we doing? What on earth are we doing? And we're going to be thinking about that over the coming weeks. Well, there's enough there to digest. Please do come and chat to me, email me if you would like to follow up on there. There's a whole, probably a bunch of verses. You can, but what about this verse? What about this verse? And I get that kind of like looking at the... The chair from different angles. You can think, yeah, that doesn't line up. Doesn't line up. That doesn't line up. Come and speak to me. There's, I've got some material if you'd like uh, me to send some through. But let's not miss the main thing: the cross-shaped lives. The cross makes sense of the end. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks for this word, and we thank you that you have sent your Son to die for us to take what we do not deserve on himself. And we thank you because of that, because of his death, because of his resurrection, you have exalted him to the name that is above every name. And so that now, as we live, help us not to be deceived by phony messiahs, help us not to be anxious and worried about the wars and the rumours of wars, Help us not to think that persecution is something abnormal for us and help us to be people who long to see the great news of salvation, of the removal of judgment. We pray that that news will be proclaimed to the nations. We ask this in your son's mighty and powerful name.